the Protect Your Neck Podcast, UFC Mexico City Breakdown. It's been a long summer of fight cards, but it ends at altitude. Let's get it. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak tree. People sitting on porches thinking how things used to be. Dark night. It's a dark night. Savages, this is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I am your host, Dan Tom, analyst and writer at MixedMartialAnalyst.com, and today, well, tonight for me, but today for you, we will be breaking down UFC Mexico City. Uh, you're probably hearing this by the day of wins. It's being recorded late night, the night before Pacific Coast, West Coast time, not the timestamp myself, but it aligns yourself with the lines, gives yourself a good reference point to where I'm at. Yes, as, well, not as per usual, it's usually Thursday, I guess, so only a day late, but yeah, uh, run it, your boy's running late again this week, uh, as you maybe have probably heard on the last podcast, uh, uh, I was really not too optimistic about breaking down this card, it's, it's been tough, I had to dig deep, but your boy did it, and uh, there's a breakdown up actually highlighted for uh, the most notable really fights on, on the whole card, but the, the four notable fights on the main card, I went in depth on in case uh, I missed some points on today's breakdown, as I usually do on these. I always suggest you go and read the particulars uh, there at MixedMartialAnalyst.com on the written breakdown. Because, um, <clears throat> yeah, again, I, I'll miss stuff on here. It's usually late night. I'm usually sleep deprived. Or alcohol-induced as the last podcast, which, again, before we get into the breakdowns, a uh, few notes off the top. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll clear up a couple notes, not to repeat some uh, same or similar notes for, for, from a previous podcast before. But yeah, man, my ass cringes when I edit these after-party editions here and your boy and uh, Brian go off on our drunk-ass tangents. Because A, we miss a lot of, of m- most importantly, we miss a lot of important stuff that I'd like to recap on, which... Um, I'm going to very, very briefly do here just because I just want to give due to certain fighters and even certain people that I actually forgot to in the last one because we were going off on our on our tirades and this and that. And and, and, uh, and I'll, I'll touch on those, I guess, real briefly here in a second. But, you know, also more importantly, not only do we miss, you know, important technical things, which, by the way, I'm, I want to get back to doing recaps. I did one for Kansas City. I really enjoyed doing that. Um even though it, it, part of me kind of feels like it's the poor man's uh, Monday morning analyst because I don't have video. I'm here doing audio, but y'all like when I explain stuff, and I, I, I like kind of going over it more uh, <clears throat> soberly, if you will, and kind of going over the technical points. That is kind of more the uh, that's more the focus of the show, so getting back to the after parties, which is why I might have to, uh, not have to, but just for my own, my, my own preference, I, I may be, that's a better word, I may be lightening up on the after parties <laughs> In uh, in the future I, again, I didn't get any complaints on the last one or, or this most recent one to be honest at all. But I, I cringe listening to these, especially you know some of the shit your boy says. And I'm not making any excuses or anything. I'm going to put it all out there again. That's what that's what you know. Better, worse, best days, worst days, in between days, right analysis, wrong analysis, best analysis, worst analysis. Um, you're getting it clear and uncut here. You know that that, that is one thing I guess I could pride myself on. As I'm always pretty honest, more honest than I should be with you guys. And, uh, you know, uh, part of 
I guess the honesty aside from the you know, obvious alcohol or maybe, you know, the attitudes. And usually I'm I'm much better, by the way, about, you know, separating the fan stuff part of my job. But I I sounded just particularly bad on these last two because, again, coincidentally, they were were headline, and I'll admit, you know, uh, wrongly so in some fashion. And I'm going to give these people their due in in a second here. But, like, you know, 213 headlined by Amanda Nunes, who I'm not, you know, the biggest fan of. Um... uh, you know, as a fighter and, and you know, uh, her lifestyle, completely, like, support that. And I, I champion those flags, but I explained before. And then, you know, the pullout, and that kind of left a sour taste for that after party. And then this most recent one with John Jones, as you know, you know, uh, not been the biggest fan of his. But, man, definitely going to give him his due here. Uh, well-deserved due here in a second. Um, I'm sure it didn't help the equation. But, uh, but yeah, your, your boy in his, you know, uh, alcoholic honestness was uh, kind of spewing the guts about... Uh, I mean, not spewing guts, but, you know, saying stuff about uh, maybe perhaps the future where I'm going. And I had some people ask me and DM me, so that's why I'm kind of addressing it here. You know, well, what is going on, Dan? You said there's stuff in the, mar- the works. Now there's not. What's going on? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, when your boy got heated about some arguments uh, on, on, on the after party, a lot of it was probably more heated than I should have been. Not that I don't stand by certain points, which I'll get to those points in a second. But I think a lot of it, too, is just, you know... For example, the points for siding with fighters um, in regards to those things, like with the uh, with the Cormier and and the and the the crying and kind of seeing the foresight ahead of my all people are going to meme the shit out of it and make fun of this guy and, and wanted to get my opinion out there ahead of th- ahead of it, which I don't, which I stand by by the way. And sure enough, people sure enough that they they did. Um, but I will say is you know even though I do stand by my points, I, I wasn't saying that you have to be a fighter to criticize or not criticize, or you have to have shared that experience or done martial arts or this or that. Um, I, I definitely try not to do that. And I definitely have stated on this podcast before, whether you're analyzing having or having opinions, um, you don't have to have done martial arts to do that. That, that to me is, is an incorrect and even elitist kind of attitude um, uh, to go about things. You know, um, that being said, uh, you know, yes, you can, Sure, you can absolutely go ahead and make fun of whoever you want to and this and that and meme and do whatever and, and you know, uh, but there's this weird thing in comedy where, you know, you're either punching up or punching down and you generally, the rule is you want to be punching upwards, right? Like, so we make fun of celebrities, we make fun of politicians, we make fun of public figures and although they suffer their own quiet battles that some of us may never ever understand at the same time. Uh, they are on that pedestal for a reason, and not that it justifies any type of behavior, especially the erratical behavior they suffer, but you know, money, fame, all these different things. It's, it's more considered punching up, whereas punching down, you're making fun of race, religion, poor people, indefensible people, average Joe people, whatever. That can be kind of a little more sensitive, right? Um, just to kind of get that term straight. So again, complete right to make fun of it, but that doesn't change the fact that you might be punching down and that doesn't change the fact that it might be showing your character and for those and again I'm saying you have the right to and I'm somebody vehemently on the other side I'm saying you have the right to um, I don't know if that constitutes defending you have the right to make fun of but yeah I'm granting that that being said people that are going out of their way and burning calories to defend their right to do it and kind of push it home which isn't the most, and not even the most creative, funny of ways. And I'm not saying that because of my bias on the subject. I mean, I'm a dude who makes fucking child molesting jokes like they're going out of style. I'll make race jokes. I'll make religion. I'll make Asian jokes. I'm you know, half Asian, by the way. I'll make terrible Asian jokes. I'll, 
I make really fucked up jokes that hit close to home and don't hit close to home or have nothing to do with me and could be just very offensive and inappropriate subjects like I just mentioned. All the above, Dan Tom finds funny for better or worse. Um, So, you know, when you're not being funny about it too on top of it, it's really hard to sell. So I guess that's all I'll say on that. Um, Again, standing by my point, but also giving leeway, maybe a better perspective and maybe a more sober um, perspective on that. But yeah, your boy gets a little on the fighter side of things and... You notice, well, Dan Tom's sensitive. You're right, I am sensitive. And if you notice, the fighter side of things, fighters are sensitive people. They have chips on their shoulders. Now, you could equate it to the head trauma they, and even, um, uh, you know, uh, unsuccessful uh, amateur martial competitors like me have sustained head trauma. You know, maybe that could be the sensitivity. Sure, I'm sure the balances that we have sustained definitely contribute or at least don't help at the very least or you could you know contribute it to the psychological and sociological environmental causes you know a lot of fighters come from broken homes broken families bad adversity abuse all these things are very common when you uh you know when when you want to stereotype or generalize and and i know very balanced educated and and, and well-balanced fighters too by the way just saying as far as stereotypes go there's a lot of things the point is the reason why fighters are so sensitive and they have chips on their shoulder is because many reasons that we probably don't understand and they almost have to be when they get in there. You need that chip on your shoulder. You need that us against the world mentality. So even though, you know, I was talking about, you know, I'm kind of touching these subjects as I go along. Woodley, who I felt actually, I I wasn't too unfair, even though we didn't know about his, we were being kind of unfair because we didn't know about the shoulder. That wasn't um, released by the time um, we were recording the after party edition. Although I, I should have known because if you look at my tweets, I tweeted and spotted in, in the first round that something was wrong with Willie's shoulder, but back to the chip on the shoulder thing, even though, you know, and, and I've stated and I stand by it, you know, I, I haven't felt that Woodley's kind of, kind of um, maybe entitlement's a strong word, but it's a certain trait that kind of uh, I associate sometimes it comes, sticks, off, sticks out to me, and there were certain times where I felt that Woodley was a bit on that side where it was, in a, you know, not inappropriate, but I just didn't, you know, I wasn't feeling it, I guess I should say. Just, that's just my opinion. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm definitely not condemning him for it. Just wasn't feeling certain stances like when he, you know, I felt that, you know, he got the title off, you know, uh, uh, one guy missing weight and then a split decision or a guy that was hospitalized that could have made an argument for winning the fight from a year and a half before and then goes immediately demanding... The money fights and this and that, I think that was a time where I kind of wasn't feeling it. But as far as like Woodley's chip on his shoulder and the Woodley versus the world thing, and, and I've seen people criticize it, and I agree, and I, I get it. Like, I see it, but I guess the reason why I don't criticize or condemn Woodley for it, because I get it, man. I get it. Even even the times where I'm not agreeing with Woodley, I completely get it. I completely get that. And, and, and maybe, not, I'm not talking about the race part, although even though I'm not an African-American, I'm, I'm you know, I grew up in a... I grew up in America as a, you know, in mainland America, uh, you know, I moved from Hawaii when I was six and I'd go back to visit every year, but mainly grew up here in the United States, West Coast America as a dark skinned individual. And, uh, you know, I can feel Woodley on certain terms of that, but that's neither here nor there. It's not what this podcast is about. The point is about sensitive fighters and chips on the shoulder. Yeah. You know, I understand. I understand, you know, why Woodley needs that for his motivating factor. A lot of fighters need that. It's not just Woodley. Woodley just kind of goes about in his way and now he's under the spotlight. So he's going to be criticized more. Um, by the way, Din Thomas did a great interview kind of really behind the scenes and giving kind of different perspectives on the Woodley, uh, stuff, which has kind of been beaten by, you know, with a dead horse at this point. Um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, um, 
go into it, but go check out the Slip and Dip podcast. Go follow him. My man, uh, uh, Matthew Wells over there, uh, hosts it with his man Kendrick, and uh, they're, uh, not his man, like, <laughs> you know what I mean, his, his co-host, I should say. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they put out a good interview, but yeah, I mean, I, I get it, man. So if Dan Tom comes off a little personal, trying to corral it in here, folks, stay on target, stay on target. So if Dan Tom gets a little sensitive on this podcast, um, keep that in mind. That's kind of where I come from. Uh, I come from that kind of perspective. And even when I go overboard, or at least I feel I go overboard and don't do a fair job of portraying it like on the after party edition there, I'm still happy that I'm, uh, I'm, uh, that I'm, uh, I'm contributing to the voices out there uh, that come from an experience perspective, that come from the martial arts perspective, that come from the fighter perspective, whether you agree with it or not. You don't have to. It's totally cool. Totally cool here again. Just explaining, that's kind of where I come from. And I know I got all freaking passionate about it, talking about losing brain cells, but it's true, man. I'm not going to be the same. And you see it, you know, you see it in all the aspects from people I know to even people that I vaguely know that I just, you know, was talking about that cornering experience from two weeks ago. You just see the people who win to the people who lose coming through. And you see life's change sometimes for no money at all, folks, with barely anybody watching. And when you see that harsh reality of the sport, that non-glorious reality, when you're a part of it, when you experience it, all the above for years on end, yes, yeah, I'm going to be a little bit more sensitive. So I don't expect you to agree. I do apologize if it comes off that way because I, I definitely don't want to control or influence your perspective in that way. But at the same time, uh, I will continue to still at least try to do my best or a better job of, you know... Uh, Shining light on a perspective that I feel is important. Sorry for that whole big roundabout thing. Uh, definitely going to get to this breakdown. But yeah, uh, Woodley note check. Oh, by the way, I don't. I, I went on a tangent again. Listening, you know, whether it's freaking uh, trolls, detractors, or, you know, just educated conversations I have um, with people I respect. I let certain things get in my head too much. And I spent too much time talking about Hen and Burrell and not enough time talking about Aljo. And I feel like I just made the same mistake as I did. Not the same mistake because, again, I feel like I was not hating but trying to shine light when when the hype was on early on Aljo. That got shown with the Caraway thing. And I did give him credits for the striking stuff since, the criticisms you know, that he did improve on. I did give him credit, but um, not enough because even though it was an like I'm not gonna rehash it too much, but it was a you know a performance where Barrow clearly fa- uh, w- w- was fading. It still shouldn't take away from the improvements Aljo made. I mean Aljo, if you, I went back to watch it, you know there's still moments where he doesn't look like he's completely comfortable striking, and you can tell because you can see these moments at points where he's having a lot of success against Barrow. And I think those are just old habits die hard, and we got we we forget you know Aljo's so young he's gonna improve so. Uh, I think he's just slowly peeling back the layers, and this was a huge jump for him, you know, huger than people were giving credit for previous, at present, and even kind of somewhat past tense, but uh, we're going to look back, and, and this is going to be, I think this is going to be a big point for Aljo's jumping off point, um, so I definitely wanted to give him credit there, and then a uh, person I, I respect who is big on him, granted Aljo's his boy, but my man Gabe Killian, because aside from Aljo, Gabe, Gabe Killian was killing it with some parlays on the last, 
on 214 and uh i had him actually in my notes to give him a shout out and i my drunk ass completely missed it so shout out to gabe killian at odds breaker for, for for killing it lately man and uh yeah as for jones um like i said i'm not going to rehash the reasons why you know maybe it was a little biased rooting for my boy cormier who you know again one, one of the nicest guys uh one of the nicest guys in the sport does there's so many things people don't even know like uh i'm not going to rehash the story but i, I shared a couple podcasts ago uh, listener of the show, uh, Russ from Boston. Uh, more importantly, Russ from Boston listened to MMA Junkie Radio, called in, and DC, you know, essentially just took care of him uh, two times to come out to see him because one of his fights was canceled in the initial time. And just DC going out of pocket for fans behind the scenes, just a crazy nice guy. But but that doesn't, regardless, Jones, and I, I did give him credit for this in the podcast, he showed class in that post fight. I wanted to watch the post fight presser. I like how he handles himself there. I really hope this is a new leaf for his reign coming forward. I'm not one to speak on pound for pound much. I think it's really dumb, uh, especially like it's a peop, you know it's just such a subjective thing in, in theory. And then also with the sport, there hasn't been great pound for pound grades since the days of the you know I always harp on the Dan Hendersons, BJ Penns, and Randy Couture's guys that go up and down in weight. And uh, though Cormier could have done that if he won, Jones did. And even though Jones you know doesn't have any heavyweight experience. There is no question he is the number one pound, pound, pound for pound great. Uh, appropriately in everybody's rankings, but even if they weren't, I would have him in mind. Um, number one everything, man. Um, it's starting to that, that performance, and I, I, I went back and I tweeted some highlights on it to give Jones' due there as well. But man, I was so impressed. That first round was so impressive. Excuse me. was so impressive because he was essentially laying the groundwork in how he was going to, you know, and how he was going to, uh, to finish. And, and I want to say, you know, to get his finishing strike because, you know, uh, flow combat, shout out to flow, put, put, put out that, uh, awesome, uh, clip, uh, before their first fight of, of the foreshadowing, but, but essentially the other foreshadowing, the actual physical technical groundwork was in that round one. It was beautiful. So, 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 grats to Jones, and he's getting me excited again, like when I first saw him against Stefan Bonner. So, um, yes, that's right. I, I was a, a big John Jones fan initially. It just was the personal stuff that kind of dissuaded me. I'm not saying it should dissuade you. I know I get passionate about that, but uh, again, I give credit where credit's due at the end of the day. Have before and still will. Um,. And yeah, okay, so sorry about that, guys, about the whole long tangent. Formalities are out of the way. I'm going to probably take this break early because I, I got to use the bathroom. And then I'm just going to come back, and we're going to just cut through bottom to top. Mark it now. Fast forward appropriately if there's a matchup you want to get to. So when we come back, we are going to break down the complete card of USC Mexico City and get this breakdown for you. Thank you for listening to the Protect Your Neck Podcast. And we're back, motherfuckers. Thank you for still being here and sitting through that fucking tangent. Didn't mean for that to go long and... Probably even missed a few things that I wanted to get to, knowing me. But regardless, let's get right to the fucking bees, knees, business. UFC Mexico City, altitude once again. We are going from bottom to the top. First fight is Alvaro Herrera, who is the underdog at plus 190 versus Jordan Ronaldi at minus 230. Now, this fight 
would be on the fights to avoid list if it wasn't for that I technically had a prop, albeit a small prop, as all my props are and will be tonight at just a quarter unit. But yes, the only prop here is that this fight will not go the distance at minus 105 uh, right now. Um, you can, you know, it's just not only is that just kind of a, a, a playable number, but more importantly than the, than the number, of course, is the analysis is the reason why I think this is kind of volatile. Jordan Rinaldi, when you look at him, you might not think he's that volatile. You know, there, there are some decent amount of uh, decisions there. Um, but it's more on the side of Alvaro Herrera that has the do or die factor. I mean, this guy is just... This guy was so jacked at 170, and he was uh, like, he was like, there was veins coming out of his neck when he was punching Vincente Luque, which, by the way, fight was over a year ago. So a lot of intangibles here to kind of just stay away from sides. W- way too many intangibles. And Rinaldi's last fight I was at, um, where he fought, was also in Vegas. I was not at the Herrera fight though, but I was at Rinaldi's fight that was during the Almeida Garbrandt card. We fought um, Abel Trujillo. Now, Rinaldi couldn't get uh, takedowns on Trujillo, who underrated, you know, NAIA wrestler there, um, you know, real strong hips. One of the few guys to take down Khabib Nurmagomedov. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, Jordan Rinaldi probably not, wasn't going to get the takedown, you know, more of a athletic jiu-jitsu guy who kind of learned wrestling secondhand in MMA. But Rinaldi's been around, man, and even though, you know, he's lost to the bigger names more than he's won, you know, probably bigger name Dennis Bermudez, granted there's a big size difference and weight class difference there, lost to Ortega despite the weight class difference there, and uh, yeah, got uppercutted, um, <clears throat> uppercutted by uh, <clears throat> Muntasri there in RFA, because uh, Rinaldi leans his head low, and he could lean his head low here, and Herrera, you know, has that boxing Maybe not so much boxing background, but it's definitely his, his, his strength. And uh, I could see Herrera you know, uncork an uppercut and catch Rinaldi. But if Herrera doesn't, I could also see him gasp because, again, he was like, bulging with muscles at six foot, you know, uh, fighting uh, at welterweight. Now he's he's making a cut to 155, and he looks slimmed down in all the social media pictures and whatnot and, and looks in good shape, but, I mean... You don't know how that cut's going to go yet. W- w- Weigh-ins don't happen till morning time or probably are happening right now as you're listening to this if you're listening to it around when it comes out. Um, you know, and then how's he going to do with the altitude? I mean, Vegas is in altitude and he was like gasping for breath. Granted, Vincente Luque was doing some really, you know, quiet body work, some really nice body kicks in that fight. But yeah, who knows? Who knows what improvements he made? Uh, it's just it's more just that do or die mentality from him, and he leaves a lot open in transition. Now, when you look at Ronaldo's submissions, he's more of a kind of submission and transition guy. I don't want to say he's an opportunist because he's not like um, uh, he's not like you know diving for those opportunities like like and, and completely selling out for him. But if Alvaro Herrera hasn't shored up a lot of the crucial mistakes that he's shown to make in transition or even defending takedowns, it could be a long night for him. Um, either way, it's, it, it's hard not to see, you know, either Rinaldi like dominating, getting a finish and getting a finish or, or uh, you know, getting caught with something. So that's why I played it uh, just at a quarter unit. Otherwise, I really suggest avoiding it. Next fight, um, Joseph Morales versus Roberto Sanchez. Joseph Morales, Team Alpha Male, is coming as a slight dog, plus 110. Roberto Sanchez came up through LFA. I believe fights out of Texas. Gracie Baja there. 
uh, submission guy as well, uh, minus 130 the favorite. Both submission guys, differences, I think. Sanchez has a little more process. That's why the odds makers are siding with them. I had a hard time getting footage on their most recent fights, but pretty much watched everything else I could get my hands on on both of these guys. I'm excited for it as a grappler, but it's going to be kind of wild and out there. I do side with Sanchez, who I think... Morales maybe more potent, throws more different arrays of stuff on the on the feet, but Sanchez shows more of the cleaner striking. Will roll out from this two, you know, he's pretty much throwing cross hooks and the occasional jab. He's doing the right thing, staying balanced on his striking. Uh, whereas Morales kind of a wild card, just kind of you know, throwing kicks, punches, um, really selling out on stuff. Whether it's a guard pull or a, or a, I don't want to say sloppy takedown. Some of them didn't look too bad, like in his last fight or the last fight available, I should say, which was like November 2016. But again, who knows how much these guys have improved. UFC debuts. That's a big stay away as it's on the avoid list. Next fight, uh, Jose Alberto Quinones, the big um, facial hair Mexican guy, if you want to you know, try to stereotype or delineate between the tough Latam fighters, versus Diego Rivas, who another guy, I was at his last fight. He last fought at uh, Hendricks versus Thompson, I guess... I, I was bad on reading up on this, um, but I, I guess he, I don't know if it's between this stint or a previous one, but the dude overcame cancer, so big props to Diego Rivas, was a big dog, and for, you know, for good reason, he, he against Noad Lahat at the time, at least, you know, Noad Lahat, BJJ Black Belt, the athletic, rounding out his game, possibly could be on the upside prospect before he left the organization, at least at this time of this fight. And uh, you could see that Rivas didn't really address too much of the holes from the house or even, you know, the regional low level, what you could see before that from him. Um, and he's going to need to have addressed that in this last year uh, here because Quinones, a bit wild too, but showing more process, you know, putting in the time, going to the United States, whether it's at Alliance or um, other places, training at Entram Gym. A lot of the guys on this card uh, in the lead up to this one. Um, which is good. Guys around his size, guys around the same, you know, the same mission for the same date for the same organization. But Kinonis is really focused on his wrestling. You can tell he's really made it a point for that in the way he scrambles, he t- gets takedowns, secures it once it hits the mat. Um, and yeah, of course he's an opportunist who you know he'll jump on a back and, and go for a choke if it's there. But he's getting he's putting more process to it, and especially putting the wrestling first, you know, position before submission. Well, working on your wrestling is going to help you get, you know, work on your position before submission. So there's definitely a path here for Quinones. You could definitely as well, you know, stand and bang on in the field with Diego Rivas. But that's another thing, you know, Rivas 5'9", maybe it's generous, maybe he's a 5'8", like Quinones, but still, he's, he's pretty thick, thick Chilean dude, you know, like not thick as in fat or even like thick as in a literal sense but you know his muscular frame for the cut that he's going to be making to 135 is pretty crazy man as as somebody who's you know well, I'm, I'm i'm probably closer to 510 so i'm told but i always try to do the opposite of most dudes and i maybe it's my self-deprecating nature but i was kind of downgrade saying five nine but yeah it's, that's a hard regardless it's a hard hard weight to make it's going to be another, another first time dropping a weight division at altitude um Hence, that's why it's it's on the avoid list. Big time avoid there. Um, oh, the pick though, uh, Kinones. Yeah, he's minus two fifty five favorite. Um, another reason why it's a avoid is that's a pretty big favorite for for a match that could be wild with a lot of intangibles. So the numbers off the the mat, the analysis is clear. Avoid. Uh, next fight, Enrique Briones, um, plus one ninety five underdog against Hani Yaya. 
minus 235 favorite as he is the first of two uh, recommended parlay pieces that I'm putting down on the breakdown. Um, I actually picked against Yaya last time. Uh, I picked Soto because Soto, again, it was it was riding all those losses, but it was real deceptive when you kind of break down those losses and whatnot. And yeah, I was sweating that first round, man, because Yaya looked good. He showed that, you know, first of all, Briones is the older of the two fighters, which doesn't seem to make sense. Like, Briones is 36 going on 37. And Ronnie Yaya, if you look at him, he looks like he's, like, been fighting since the 80s. Like, you, you know, he's kind of, he's got the, the furry chest and he's a little bald. And he looks like you've put a gold chain on Ronnie Yaya. He's like, hey, what's going on, everybody? Like, he just looks like he's been been around since the 80s. But now Ronnie Yaya, he's, he's he's the younger guy here at 32. He's just been, he's just been fighting for a minute and fighting consistently. And um, a theme that I try to go go for, you know, I always talk about the things on my voice from heavyweights, flyweights, female fights. But as far as, uh, and again, not not a bragging point because I'm, I'm, I'm not the best at this. But, you know, as far as my process behind these picks for recommended parlay pieces, I tend to go with solid sample sizes, consistency, and grapplers. Yeah, that's, in my opinion, what I feel most confident when I... I'm going to recommend a, a recommended parlay piece and slash personally play somebody at a juice line in a parlay or not, right? So, um, Honey Aya fits the bill here. And it's what's weird to say because, you know, yeah, he hasn't has much potent submissions as you would think a jiu-jitsu black belt specialist world champion that him should be getting. But you also look at the competition. You know, he's faced quote-unquote good grapplers. And on the flip side, you have, you know, even though it's a clear kind of striker versus grappler matchup, Briones... We haven't really had to see the strengths or weaknesses of his grappling game because he's really one against strikers. That being said, from high-level strikers like Garbrandt to lower-level ones like Guido Canetti, everybody who's wanted to take him down has take, took him Brianos down, and that's the problem here. Um, Haniyaya, you know, he's gotten tired in matches before, and sure enough, it crept up and he got tired in the last match. Sure, but last match was a weird intangible. He had, A, the attitude intangibles of trying to make a statement. He was really vocal with the media before his Soto fight about making a title run. Stuff you want to hear, stuff you like to see. And he actually came to back it up again. This was sweating with my Soto pick that first round because Hani Yaya came throwing, you know, much different striking rate than he's ever thrown at a much higher pace, which A, kind of would explain the maybe getting tired later in the fight. But more importantly, there's this crazy headbutt that it looks like it's going to stop the fight because it busts open Joe Soto's head. But ironically enough, the damage actually did more damage and actually ended up helping Joe Soto because it did more damage to Haniyaya, who got dropped from it, looked stunned from that point on, and not taken away from Joe Soto, who, again, I picked to win that fight. But, uh, but yeah, man, uh, you could see Haniyaya in a different state. Then he starts shooting for desperate takedowns and much more takedowns. And when you fail on desperate takedowns, well, that's like the most tiring thing you can do. So you have all these factors working against Haniyaya, and you see him like having to get carried to his stool, which is not a good look, you know, coming into that round three of that fight. But that being said, there are not excuses, you know, uh, but tangible reasons for it that at least, at the very least, make make it a non-condemnable performance from Yaya, right? And to kind of add to that, he comes out in round three despite being carried to his corner and survives. Clearly loses, but survives. And that's the thing. Even when performances were wasn't as dramatic, but you could tell Hania looked tired in the past. 
these crafty grapplers, these crafty MMA, these veteran MMA fighters, they have that savvy where they can survive. You know, they can survive and grapple when necessary. And against a guy like Briones, where I feel even though he moves around, and the takedown won't be easy in that sense. But as far as his wrestling defense, there's not going to be a lot there. I feel like if Yaya gets in trouble or if he's not getting in trouble, he can score takedowns, rest on top, and or find a finish. Or if not, find the finish, again, rest on top and cruise and ride to the rounds and get the round. Um, so there's a lot of couple different paths. I'm, I, 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 I may have sp- sprinkled on the sub. Uh, yeah, I think I put something on there for fun. But I, don't, I, I didn't put my recommended thing because... Again, that's more just my personal play. I just couldn't. I, 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 I just that's kind of just what I see. But I already have them out there for uh, my parlay piece, so I'm not sure if I have them on the props list or not yet. But, uh, but yeah, that'll that'll be out on the breakdown. Um, and again, if you're listening here, you always get these little extra tidbits of stuff that maybe didn't make the breakdown. So bonus for you. Thanks for listening. But uh, and I'm not saying to go right out and play that, by the way, but just being honest with what I played uh, as far as that goes. Um, all the props, by the way, that it will be listed are will be only a quarter unit. There's, there's not much that will be listed, by the way. Not much I'm excited for. Hence, yeah, it's prop betting in MMA. It's stupid anyways. You shouldn't be doing it. But uh, if you are going to follow me, <laughs> I suggest following the ridiculously stupid low unit size that I do on it. Uh, because, again, prop betting in MMA, people. All right, next fight. Um... Enough on that one. Next fight on the avoid list. Dustin Ortiz versus Hector Sandoval. Dustin Ortiz minus 220. Come back on Hector Sandoval plus 180 as underdog. Some might ask, well, why, why not play this one, Dan? Dustin Ortiz would seem like a parlay piece for many. And I guess I wouldn't blame you here, Dustin Ortiz, even though, like I said, I, I always kind of, you know, hold it. I, you know, I always have something against Dustin Ortiz. Maybe because he left, you know, Willow hanging and he sided with Burble Cut. You know, with my stupid 80s Ron Howard film reference there. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, something, I don't know, man. But, but, but he, you know, he, he was, uh, sorry, what I was going to say was he's consistent, though. In his defense, he's consistent. That being said, Hector Sandoval, a.k.a. Garbage Pail Kid. <laughs> sorry, I mean, dickish there. But uh, Garbage Pail Kid, fucking, and not even just the last performance. He's always kind of had that heavy hands, you know. Not just the last performance against Schnell. Um, something something scares me off about him. You know, something tells me that if he can scramble, and we're going to be able to tell by the first round if, he, if he's going to be able to scramble, I mean, with Ortiz. I mean, do I think he's a better grappler, wrestler, submission person even than Dustin Ortiz? No, I think Dustin Ortiz holds the check marks, but especially in this flyweight division, guys, where everybody's technical, it's going to be real hard to finish. you got to have a real skill discrepancy. Hector Sandoval may be very well be good enough to scramble with Ortiz. And if he's good enough to scramble with Ortiz, he's good enough to catch him. That being said, Ortiz could really put a statement. He's working, doing his time at CM, CSA, so maybe his confidence is up in the standard department. And he could make a statement, as I was going to say, in the submission grappling department. Maybe get a finish early. Either way, makes me uncomfortable picking a side. And even makes me uncomfortable picking an over or under, which... Our price kind of normal for a flyweight fight, so even more the reason to kind of stay away there. It's on my avoid list. All right, next fight, uh, Brad Scott versus Jack Hermanson. Uh, Brad Scott is the underdog, plus 215. Jack Hermanson favorite, minus 255, as uh, Jack Hermanson is the second recommended parlay piece. You all know I'm pretty high on Jack Hermanson. Not only is he a talented dude, one of the few European guys who could wrestle, do submission, 
He can you know do submissions as well. Uh, transition. He fights at good at range, not good at range, but decent at range. Moves really well in and out. Moves at angles. Can box. Can throw kicks when he needs to. More boxing than anything, especially dirty boxing, which is why I like this match because Brad Scott, who I've constantly underrated, Brad the Bear Scott as kind of just the guy who's just there. And with his style and his win-loss record and inconsistency and the spots in the cards where he usually fights and the matchups that he usually gets, well, easy to see why maybe he's just there. But no, in Brad Scott's defense, he's durable, he's tough, uh, he has a kind of fighter spirit that, you know, uh, perhaps if you have a weird taste like me, you kind of root for the guy. Really good boxing, or, you know, really improved boxing, I should say, especially when you look at the overall progression, you know, real comfortable, especially when he gets his groove, you know, he'll kind of hit that inside slip with a right hand, follow it up with a uh, deceptively smooth left left and a- accurate left hook he throws. Um, could serve him well here against Hermanson, but Brad Scott's safety position is inside the clinch, and that is where Jack Hermanson makes his money. And, you know, especially when you look at not the most recent, but more recent, even though it's within two years, I guess, his second or third fight there, Brad's uh, second or third most recent fight there, Brad Scott against uh, Dylan Andrews, granted, who was kind of on his way out there. Uh, But Dylan Andrews drops him like twice clean in in the dirty, you know, in the dirty boxing clinch and the, you know, using the the uppercut, the the, the money punch right in that. That money spot for Hermanson. And what is Brad's? I mean, he does one, end up winning the match, but what does he do? He keeps going back to that spot. He He's very predictable in, in a lot of the, the paths that he runs. And the place where he takes rest in is going to be trouble, whether it's the striking of Hermanson, which I just highlighted, or the fact that Hermanson gets most of his takedowns from the clinch, as in his wrestling, amateur wrestling days, more of a uh, Greco Roman stylist. So really good from the clinches, really good chains from there. And once he hits the floor, he goes to work. Yeah, sure, Hermanson got caught by Fahey. But Fajera, who went from a punchline for his chin, shown uh, kind of a resurgence in his game. And Hermanson was kind of a part of that. He also caught Hermanson. And what was a weird performance? Hermanson's first fight in Brazil, second fight in the UFC. A weird sophomore performance from Hermanson. But he bounced back strong against Nicholson, who, yes, maybe in foresight like me, or in hindsight if you weren't like me, regardless, maybe not the most talented fighter, Still, Hermanson, I think, surprised even many who, like me, were high on him in that spot. Didn't expect him to get the job done that fast. Wasted little time. Said the right things after. Wanted to prove himself with a top 10 opponent. Uh, doesn't quite get a top 10 opponent. Maybe he shouldn't quite get a top 10 opponent. It's probably more smart that you know Hermanson uh, get a solar build. I mean, even though Hermanson looks like a, a fucking 50-year-old, uh, <laughs> he's only like 29 or something. So, I mean... Brad Scott's probably good, the right opponent at the right time for him to have. Uh, Brad Scott won't be a pushover, despite Hermanson being one of my more confident picks. That being said, I just see Hermanson being able to outclass him everywhere, you know, pure and simple. Um, and, and I've been hiring Hermanson before. You know, he has an attitude and tangible where he would come over and do well, which he did in his debut performance. And they're, they're, they're uh, they both have, because uh, they both have, oh yeah, they both have that common opponent in Scott Askham. Scott Askham, the, the the guy with the uh, those freaking all those castle people with the freaking uh, they, they look like they're uh, about to storm a castle. They all have the knight's armor on. And they go Yorkshire, Yorkshire, Yorkshire. Those people like follow Scott Askham everywhere. By the way, I mean, you fucking Scott Askham like taking a shit and people just Yorkshire, Yorkshire, Yorkshire. So they're like, I show up, you fucking cunts. Go get some fucking quiet. So, <laughs> anyways. 
Wow, where am I going with that? Anyways, I hope to see Scott Askham soon in a uh, wobbly leg contest with Travis Brown, sponsored by Jim Bean, where they drink half a pint and just go wobbly legs in the octagon. All right, I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, let's get to the main card. Uh, first straight play, and uh, one of the one of the, one of the few dog picks of the night is I have Andre Sukumta, who is currently at plus 105. We'll see how the line goes. I'm not sure who's on him and who's not, if any at all. Probably don't blame you for avoiding it, but he was a straight play. Um, the most confident dog for what that's worth on the card. So I played him, and of course, so I listed. Uh, just a half unit, of course, nothing crazy. Come back on Alejandro Perez if you like him. Also playable, minus 125. I can see why Perez here is favored. Mexico, he's known for getting out these gritty decisions, even ones where he arguably should have lost, like the Morales where he squeaked out a draw, and he just has weird fights along the sample size. It's really kind of hard to tell what you're going to get with Alejandro Perez. Kind of have a mind of his own out there, the whole punching after the bell and just his... Is kind of stubbornness, you know. You hear, you know, Javier Mendez kind of fighting with him in the corner. It's like he takes the initiative to go train at AKA and make these improvements to improve his game. The stuff you want to see these Mexican fighters um, do to improve and, and represent their country well. But I don't know, man. Perez is kind of that stout penguin frame, throwing ones or twos at a time. And I like Andre Sukumta. He's, you know, the Loatian sensation, the poor man's Loatian Jose Aldo without the jab. You know, as soon as he gets the jab, he's going to do good. Uh, but uh, if you have a good jab, as Albert Morales showed, you can kind of uh, you can kind of frustrate Sukumta. Who Sukumta was winning that fight with Albert Morales till he kind of makes that really ill-advised decision that looks like he's kind of out of gas where he takes the off-balance shot, gets his back taken, loses a round that he was otherwise winning in the momentum of the fight that was otherwise going his way, uh, where he was going liver shot crazy. He went like crazier than Matt Brown did against Eric Silva with those repeat left hooks to the body. Still, it was Andre Sukumtado, a more, not veteran of the regional, but more experienced of the regional guys making their way to the UFC. It was still his first fight in the UFC. We all know about that debut, debut performance. We're not going to see the best guy. Not only that, I believe it was his first camp under Henry Hoof because he's more of a Della Grade, uh, New England, um, New England uh, circuit type. New England circuit type guy, uh, Sukumta. But now you know with Combat Club that uh, down there doing a lot of uh, doing a lot of wrestling, uh, working with Herbert uh, Burns and Gilbert Burns. Um, for the jiu-jitsu, it looks like he's doing all the right things, you know, really taking it serious, diet, video blog, really putting his career forth, um, you know, he's fought some tough guys, you know, uh, when you look at his losses, as far as losses are, are pretty legitimate, um, you know, Kelleher and whatnot, and uh, I don't know, man, I like Sukumta here, I really like, uh, I don't think, I don't think Perez, I think Perez is going to need to mix takedowns and mix those looks in to have success with his striking, and I don't think he's going to be able to get those takedowns, though, because Sukumtha, you know, like a lot of those Muay Thai guys, and he's a soccer-slash-athletic guy, they could pick up wrestling really easily. And similar to the Jose Aldo, you can tell he's a Jose Aldo fan, maybe because of his soccer background from the left hook to leg kicks. But dude also has some strong hips and a little knack for the counter-wrestling there. I think that's going to be a play a big factor, because if Perez is forced to stand with Sukumtha, I see Sukumtha getting a read on Perez's lackadaisical jab hooks that he throws and ones and twos at a times. Even though he's pretty frequent with them, it's still frequent with them. It's still ones and twos at a time. And Sukumta is more of a slow burn type guy. 
Um, that fight was kind of on a shorter notice too, I believe, that last one. So maybe that's why he got tired and made that ill-advised decision in the third round that I, I said about with Morales. He's got a full camp this time. I think he does well. I think he gets the win. Put a half unit at plus 105. Uh, let's see if it happens. Next fight, we have Smiling Sam Alvey as the favorite, minus 135 favorite, against the former champion, Sugar Hashad Evans at a plus 115 dog. Um, yeah, I mean, it, my bias on Sam Alvey aside, I really, you know, as just do the odds makers in public, I think he wins this fight. Um, obviously, the big question for Alvey and how he loses is activity. Um, Rashad, even this kind of shell of Rashad is not a, doesn't seem as confident. Still throws with much more activity than Alvy, even despite things not going his way. Turned it up, of course, too little too late. Was probably worried about gassing, as he looked worried the whole time. Let's go along with the questionable confidence Rashad did in his middleweight debut against Dan Kelly. But still, again, holds the output advantage, which is kind of the common culprit for Sam Alvey in losing. You know, especially decisions. However, ironically enough, Sam Alvey, the two de- he has won some decisions. And in the UFC, the decisions he's won... Or coincidentally, both both the only decisions at altitude, only fights at altitude, Mexico and Denver. So now he's back in Mexico City, and uh, uh, so I'm not too worried about Alvy getting out there early or not knowing what to expect. Whereas Rashad, I do. I mean, in, from social me, from social media, he looks heavier than the last cut, and the last cut he looked decent, and apparently he didn't even have a nutritionist for that one. I don't suspect that he has a nutritionist for this one, especially because he went out to Mark Henry's. Not last minute. He's been out there for a month, but the way he sounded, he wasn't even sure if he was going to go or not. He went, and then even a week out there, his first initial, initial, admittedly initial reaction was, "Ah, I want to, I want to leave here, but force himself because he believes, you know, fighters will try different things, not just moving shot, moving camp, moving divisions. They just have certain theories, and they're they're kind of last ditch efforts to salvage their career. And I don't want to say that to be discounting or rude. Uh, when, I, when I when I say that, but I'm just just kind of probably probably the most appropriate words there though, if we're, we're being honest. And part of Rashad's theory was, you know, he needs a coach again, and which is kind of true. You saw his career kind of fall apart, which uh, not not to kind of re- rehash on the Jones thing, but that, that's another that was kind of the first flag of the Jones thing where I've, I I found myself feeling bad for Rashad back then, going, oh man, Rashad's getting forced out of his camp. That doesn't seem right. And now you look hindsight to see what happened since then, and. You know, I think even Rashad like talked a bit, bit, bit about it in that uh, documentary I recommended, uh, or goes I should say recommended on here uh, on Top Five Kick KOs, the hurt the hurt business. But yeah, that that really played a factor, and so maybe he's revisiting that now, trying to get a coach. And yeah, sure, maybe Mark Henry should be good for a guy who's uh, primarily boxes and wrestles and. And yeah, Mark Henry successfully coached some wrestle boxers in his day, hasn't he? Hmm. So maybe that is a good thing, but. Not just the age, rust, reactions, where Rashad's at. But even if, you know, we've even seen fighters in their athletic prime when they switch a camp. There's always that adjusting period, you know? So you also have that factor kind of going against Rashad here. How's he adjusting to that? You know, how's the weight cut going to go? How's, you know, for all we know, Alvy could have a better output than him. And in, in Alvy's defense, he has... Tried to turn it up when he needs to. You know, he might. You know, uh, we, we saw that in the Marquardt fight. Now, now the latest fight's kind of funny because that's a weird sample size, right? Literally, I mean, Alvy had a, a messed up ankle going into that fight, and then literally the first kick sets it off. Not taking anything away from latest there, but come on, you know what I'm saying? And in Alvy's defense, 
he was able to fight his way back into a decision on that. You know, and make it a, you know, even though I agree with the decision 100%, but I'm just saying he made it, made it competitive, surprisingly. So even though he lost, the, the sample size skewed is skewed, and if anything, kind of speaks to um, the toughness of Alvi. But uh, more importantly, um, I see Alvi landing his counters. And, you know, Alvi usually counters with his check right hook, one of the best weapons a southpaw can have. But one of the other best weapons a southpaw can have, the left hand, countering and coming forward. He really uses his right hand to feed guys into his left. And Rashad will usually slip off to his left and reset heavily back to his right, which that, coupled with the fading reaction times, coupled with the fact that his right hand the hand that should be defending left hands, in theory, is usually busy doing extended parries or throwing offense of its own. The over-delineation of that and the other attributes, yes, lead to Rashad Evans, as I always harp. You've heard me before if you've heard me break down a Rashad Evans fight. Left hands are his common culprit, from the crosses to Mishita, to the jabs of Bader, to the left hook of Teixeira, to even, yeah, the left hands, repeated left hands of old man Kelly. Uh, that, that your boy here called for last time. Yeah, left hands have been the common culprit. You don't want to take that sleeper left hand from Sam Alvey. So the pick is Alvey inside the distance. And to put a little money where my mouth is, it's kind of my, one of my things where, you know me, you know I always I always play Alvey by TKO. It's almost one of those things you can count on me playing, So which means you should probably stay away. But even if you do follow me again, I only put a light bet on there, quarter unit. As I suggest, if you do, you don't put any more than that, believe me. But plus 250 for what I feel is the most likely outcome, and even in matches before where Alvi wasn't favored to win, feels like he got less odds on the TKO prop than this. I took it. I took a shot. All right. Next fight. Uh, Humberto Bandene versus Martin Bravo. Not a lot of footage on Humberto, but what South America, I believe Peru. Um, he's a frantic dude, man. He, uh, southpaw guy who's, you know, there's a decent body kick, which could be there because this guy's got a similar frame to the 155-pound uh, opponent, previous opponent, Martin Bravo, faced a weight class up in his in his debut, or the Ultimate Fighter finale, I should say, Puelas. And Puelas was able to land um, to the body with consistency. So, something to look for here, but even though I haven't seen the most recent footage, probably in the last eight or nine months of Humberto... Uh, I don't know, not a lot to like. Um, I mean, he is now training, I guess, with uh, well, maybe his last fight, the King of the Cage fight, which I couldn't see. That was his last fight with um, Team Oyama. It would have been nice to see what improvements happened there. And obviously, he's probably doing it through the uh, Chito Vera connection there. Uh, so good, you know, maybe he can just like Chito Vera, you know, turn him into a wild, he's similar to Chido Vera, throws wild strikes on the feet, wild submission opportunist for better or worse, losing position for better or worse on the ground. Kind of that same mold of fighter, but a, a lower level with maybe even a lower ceiling in my opinion, just because of the, just the raw franticness in nature. Granted, these were, you know, some of his first fights as a pro, but these are all against low level competition, but they're also against low level competition. And it's kind of a consistent nature and if that's kind of consistently in his nature that high urgency well how's it going to be when he makes his debut on a main freaking card in mexico city uh, against a mexican at high altitude you know this really feels like it has a lot of do or die intangible so this would usually be on the avoid list 
But there just should be a clear skills gap here because Martin Bravo, who impressed a lot against Puelas, shows even though a bit unorthodox and still a little bit green, his head is in the complete right spot where he's turning his hips away against the cage, circling out, but he's circling out and keeping a wrist grab. He's breaking the grip of the takedown, but even though he's breaking a grip and circling out like a Robert Whitaker, he's holding on to the wrist and coming back and punching. He's only leaving just far enough to where he can come back in and strike. Now, that's a risky game to play, even if you're a good wrestler. That's a risky game to play, even if you're a good wrestler who is a savvy veteran MMA fighter who knows the importance of striking off the break. And, you know, Martin Bravo, the sample sizes. He's still green. He's still young. The sample size is limited. He could still very well pay for it. But these are great fucking things I love to see. Great things to see. His head's in the complete right spot, and I think striking off the break here is going to pay dividends because Ben Dene, we've seen him like submitted in regional scenes and or even in fights that he wins, he'll like get reversed and almost submitted. And what does he do once he gets back to the feet? He goes right back for a takedown. We'll get reversed and we'll get reversed from being on top side like multiple times before winning or losing fights. Like the dude's a fucking wild man against like not the greatest of competition. So uh, I don't like him getting being able to score takedowns, much less out scramble or keep Martin Bravo down. And even though the high intangible, low sample size of a fight, one of which involving a debutante, odds makers, rightfully so, um, are real confident as you see a minus 330 number next to Martin Bravo as the favorite with a comeback on Humberto at plus 270. You usually don't see that drastic of odds for this dynamic of a fight, but just the skills gap is so clear if you really watch the footage on these two. I think that's what it is. Uh, so with Bravo being way too out of range to play straight up and not enough sample size or dynamic in the right spot for it to be a parlay piece, um, he made it off the avoid and surprisingly onto the prop list just like the opening bout of Rinaldi and Herrera did. Uh, so does Humberto and Martin Bravo. In similar spirit, although I didn't play fight, doesn't go the distance because it's it's partially because you're getting uh, minus odds. Uh, although still playable, not quite as playable as minus 105, like the previous prop that I just referred to with the Rinaldi and Herrera. But the prop I'm talking about here for Humberto Martin Bravo is the under two and a half, which is at plus money. Plus 115 because, um, yeah, I see Bravo get into TKO or unless he really... Com- the only way Bravo loses this fight, there's no way he loses it by decision. I really don't see him losing it by TKO. But if he does, maybe he let, gets, you know, maybe Ben Dene De- ben lands one of those freak liver shots that shut down guys with, with the best of chins. That could be like a small 1.2%. But really, Humberto's best chance is catching a rogue submission. But he's bad enough where Bravo, who doesn't seem to look for that many submissions, could I could see Bravo catching him a submission. More specifically, though, I see Bravo um, getting the TKO. I think I sprinkled the TKO because just because I think the TKO line is like plus three. It's almost plus the, going the complete other, uh, other way, which is crazy when you have a favorite that's minus 330 and the most likely way he's probably going to win is by TKO and that's you're getting plus 330 roughly in that range going the other way I may have sprinkled there but uh the official prop though which I feel covers both ends and I don't play much unders or overs you know me unless it's tempting this one I felt was tempting though under two and a half plus 115 took a shot again only a quarter unit not getting crazy here folks but that is the play otherwise I say stay away Alright, next one's a firefight and the last straight up play. Alan Joban is the favorite, minus 165, plus 145 Nico Price. 
I like Joban here, man. I like him a lot. Um, the obvious uh, weakness of Joban and the obvious intangible of play, of course, is going to be his chin. A uh, stat to back that, as stated in the breakdown, he has been dropped or stopped in his last three or five fights. And Nico Price has the durability and I don't give a fuckness attitude intangibles, forward pressure, persistence, all the above to push through and land a meaningful shot. True. However, even in that scenario, I foresee a lot of forecasted turbulence for Nico Price coming in on a good day or bad. Even if he's improved from previous footage, he's going to have to be very improved, I think, defensively. Because Price, uh, and he's got plenty of room to grow, so so, so plenty of room to prove, prove, prove assholes like me wrong, but respectfully as possible, he's, he's pretty choppy, he's pretty stiff. There's a lot of openings I see. I think there's going to be a speed difference despite Joe Bam being the older guy. Um, uh, not by a huge gap, but definitely clearly the older guy, right? And, and clearly the ride is going to end sooner if not later, uh, sooner than later for Joe Bam, sure. But I don't think it's going to end here. I think this is a really, a real good matchup for him, especially Joe Bam lately. I mean, part of the reason why, even though 3 of 5 is a relevant sample size, you know, him being dropped or stopped, 3 of his last 5, um, He's kind of run into, he's been dropped throughout his career, which people point to past those five fights at the sample size I gave. But he's also been much more aggressive and reckless, whereas from the Mike Perry fights, even the Gunnar Nelson fight, though he did get caught by that freak pinpoint shot, and that set off the submission there. Because again, Gunnar couldn't, um, some, well, we'll get to that in a second, I guess. Um, Joban has been more, what I was, what I was originally saying, Joban has been more. Uh, um, more appropriate in how he approaches, more veteran, like more safe, more conservative, if you will, and uh, looking to sit back and counter more as he's developed that part of his game, not just the offensive maelstrom that he's known for. And I think that's going to serve him well here. I think he knows that. I think this is a more poor man's version. Uh, it's also another floor reading, coincidentally. A more poor man's version of Mike Perry, Nico's prices, and the dynamic of that matchup is the same, where I see Alan Joban either outpointing or possibly even scoring the TKO. Um, with his counter crosses, uh, having play against the more open defensively, more choppy, even again, more, in my opinion, slower striker in Nico Price. And when Nico Price goes to do the typical high guard or to shell, I could also see Alan Joban, you know, landing that crushing liver kick, which I suspect he's going to look for. You Most knowledgeable strikers tend to go more body when they know that they have like a long night ahead. When they see they have a big, durable, persistent guy. Like Nico Price, I'm sure Joe Ban's smart enough, just like with the Mike Perry fight where he's like going to manage expectations. It's like, yeah, definitely going to fucking look to capitalize on this guy. But hey, this guy's tough. He's in it for the long haul. We're going to play smart and uh, in case it doesn't come. So um, I think he does that here. And his, his wrestling offensively, which he scored against uh, Mike Perry, was a underrated, strong base, balance, underrated wrestling ability Mike Perry has. Scored a takedown on him. But more importantly, Alan Joe Ban's defensive wrestling, his high hoists, his overhooks, underhooks, much better, especially in the clinch against the cage where Nico Price does his best work. That being said, on the striking-wise, you know, Nico Price also does his best striking work there. So if Joe Ban does like to counter, he will have to be kind of be weary that he's playing in that space. But, but, but as far as defending grappling from that space, I like it. You know, uh, Price, I don't know about the bottom game so much, and I, won't, I wouldn't count on it, especially at this level, especially at this weight class, especially against a fellow brown belt. But even though they're both brown belts, Nico Price could wreak havoc on top. Some good catch-down controls. Uh, gift wraps and stuff he likes to use to set up his head and arm, stuff that I really like to use. Uh, you know, 
could be worth watching out for. But like I said, I, I don't know if he gets Joban down in the first place. And Joban's got an improved scrambling game. So, I, I, and like I was uh, kind of cheating into saying before, before I cut myself off, Gunnar Nelson also had trouble submitting Joban. But he submitted Joban. Yeah, after he like knocked him out with like two shots twice. Um, in the first round, we saw him getting a little frustrated, having to go for damage because he wasn't able to find the submission despite mounting Joban. Hence why Kavanaugh gave... Gunner the cue to, to kind of manage his fighter's expectations in the corner subtly by saying, don't worry about the submission if you get him done again. Go for strikes. Because even Kavanaugh knew it was going to be a long night uh, should he get a sober Joe Ban there. Anyways, uh, I like Joe Ban here. Played him straight up. Only half a unit. Didn't get crazy, but at minus 165, Nico Price proved me wrong. Maybe he is that guy that he was talking about in his last post-fight speech, eh? All right, co-main event, a surprising co-main event as it is, it's on the avoid list because this is going to be close no matter whose side you have it on. Um, we have Random Marcos as the dog, plus 140. Alexa Grasso as the justified favorite is minus 160. I say justified favorite because I initially had Alexa Grasso coming in, but the more I looked at it, um, I, I think Random Marcos could win this. You know, Perhaps I, I, look, I overlooked uh, Random Mar- Handa Marcos against Esparza in the last time out. Um, though I do still feel that there's an argument that, that Esparza won that fight. Uh, nevertheless, don't want to take anything away from Marcos. And looking at the silver lining for Marcos in that fight, regardless of how you score it, she did well uh, in wrestling and scrambling scenarios, all things considered. And I think that's what's going to be a big key here. You know, she's taken down all her, all of her UFC opponents. So I think she'll be able to take Grosso down, even if Grosso's doing a better job at fainting. But fainting's going to be the key for Grosso, whether it's outstriking, which she has the, obviously has the on-paper advantage against Marcos, or defending Marcos's uh, takedown threats. It's going to be fainting. You know, I picked Grosso against Herrig. Um, now, Herrig, you know, underrated by many, uh, including myself there, has shown since then uh, in her fights against Justin Quiche that... You know, she is on the upswing. That was no coincidence, which in turn makes Grosso look better that she lost to her. But neither here nor there. The reason why Grosso lost and the reason was because she didn't have the volume. And I believe the reason why she didn't have her usual volume, her usual combination striking that wins her, wins her the battles was because she lacked the feints and uh, made her more predictable slash made her attacks more predictable, which made Herrick able to counter her and make her pain exchanges with her right hand, following it over the top. And considering that, Miranda Marcos' best strike is her right hand, as she's shown to use it coming forward and off the counter. She's been working her boxing now, I believe, title boxing down in Michigan in these last two camps. Um, something to possibly look out for, but but I think I picked Miranda Marcos here because I think she's going to mix it up. I think since she has the veteran savvy and grappling, I don't think she's going to be able to submit Grosso, and I think she's going to have a hard time. She's going to have to work hard to hold Grosso down because Grosso, even though she is good guard retention, she's smartly going away from it more and will put feet on the hips or even go to a heel hook to create a scramble and get back to her feet. She has a real good sense down there, so I think it's going to be a dog fight. Like It's not going to be easy for either side, but I do see Marcos getting the better, and more importantly, at the very least, scoring in those scenarios. Um, and if you're scoring in scenarios that are close rounds and grappling when it's close striking, well, we've seen that win out rounds before. So uh, I essentially predict this kind of being you know, similar to a fight against Esparza, even though it's a different fighter in that 
I could see uh, Marcos edging out the first two rounds here, and then that slow burn of Grasso catching up to where Grasso starts putting it on her at the end, but it's too little too late kind of a thing. Or maybe she does enough and gets the nod. Uh, because, you know, uh, Marcos does kind of cut easily in her fights, and again, you look at someone who cuts easily versus a volume striker, then you can kind of predict cuts, you know. I, I, go ask a cut man. You know, they know when those matchups happen. They know they're going to get a lot of work in their corner. Um, uh, one of my first predictions back in the day, UFC 118, I predicted uh, Nate Diaz over Marcus Davis by TKO doctor stoppage. And if you remember, the doctor almost stopped it twice, probably would have stopped it before the third round if that fight didn't take place in Boston. Because uh, Marcus Davis was all cut up. You had a guy with scar tissue versus a volume, versus a volume striker. So... If Grasso does find her mark, I don't see her finishing Marcos, but that's another factor that could play into the potential of the already favorable hometown crowd. Nevertheless, I know, I'm actually going with Marcos by decision here. Um, the safest play, I think, is minus 270 right now which, uh, for parlay fodder, uh, which I know, that if that's the safest play, I probably should avoid it, but hence on the avoid list. But yeah, uh, minus 270, fight goes the decision, because I think no matter who wins, I think this thing's going to the distance. Hard to see either girl submit or knock each other out. Pure and simple. A lot on the line. Both need a win. And we'll see what the altitude does to both uh, both, both females there. Alright, moving on to the last. To the last fight where we have no official plays. And I honestly didn't play anything on this one because not even my usual uh, fight doesn't go the distance in a five-round fight. Because this is a five-round fight that's a flyweight fight. And it's a close flyweight fight no matter who you cut it. Sergio Pettis is the dog, plus 150. Brandon Moreno, minus 170. Now, I almost played one of the few times I play lines early. You know Dan Tom usually doesn't do it, but I almost did here. And I almost did for Sergio Pettis because you all know, I may be harsh on Anthony, but I feel that Sergio is the A-side of the Pettis brothers. I'm real high on Sergio Pettis. I picked him to upset Cejudo, though that fight didn't come to fruition. Um... I was high on him against Moraga, although that might not say much, but I really like his pull and return stylings, his point fighting stylings. I think he's got underrated wrestling, get-up ability. Um, I think he's got a decent ceiling. Still got a lot to learn, though. Unfortunately, I ended up going with Moreno the more I looked at footage, mainly because um, Pettis still does questionable things, you know, and, 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 and not just questionable things, the areas that have traditionally troubled Pettis even, I should say, are, in my opinion, coincidentally, the areas Moreno thrives in. And with that dynamic, I've been burn-picking against when I see those clear puzzle pieces fit before. Um, because you know me, I like process, I like point fighters, I like volume strikers, I like these things that would lead me to pick a Sergio Pettis pick, especially a dog money, which I don't blame you if you played him, by the way. Don't blame me at all. I stay the fuck away from this one. Um, but the pick, I do stand by the pick, though. The pick is Moreno, uh, because... One of Moreno's shots is the left hook. We saw him trade left hooks with Benoit. And Benoit, when he traded left hooks with Pettis just once, we saw what that did to Pettis. And Benoit, arguably since then, wasn't training with Ricky Lindell or Canelo's team, uh, boxing team. And uh, so, in other words, I'm saying the Benoit, not that this MMA math works, the Benoit that faced Brandon Moreno was arguably a better Benoit. And what happened when that Brandon Moreno um, exchanged hooks with Benoit, we saw that even though Moreno got caught off balance throwing a kick on on some of his shots, it was more him being off balance. But when he was standing in the pocket planning and trading, he was actually getting the better 
in there with Benoit, who's a real powerful puncher. I mean, Benoit's a guy who was was banging around at 135. Y'all remember his? Uh, if you, I don't know if y'all remember because this is an outside the UFC fight, but his fight against Anthony Burchak. Oh, that was a barn burner. Ryan Benoit versus Burchak. Go look up that fight, by the way. But yeah, um, you know. But yeah, um, uh, sorry, where was I going with that? But but Moreno, oh yeah, he was doing much better in striking exchanges, you know, and and left hook is his money punch, and and you know, stereotype Mexicans, aside from them being good cardio, they, as far as a boxing stereotype, they, they they love their left hooks. They're good at their left hooks. A lot of them are known for their left hooks. And Sergio Pettis, left hands have been his common culprit. You know, he got dropped by left hands uh, from Hobar. Uh, Caceres, granted, who were southpaws, but even in what was a really impressive performance otherwise against uh, John Moraga, his most recent and relevant performance, he was still getting hit getting hit by uh, left hands uh, from the orthodox stance, John Moraga, in the form of check left hooks, and that's the shot that Moraga's not really known for, and he was uh, hitting Sergio on multiple occasions, and Moreno, who was throwing him better from a check, as, you know, aside from his normal... Uh, you know, boxing roots uh, with Entron Jim who he's training with now. He spent the better part of last year where he made huge gaps and getting kind of a different perspective training in the States uh, with Dwayne Ludwig and company. So he's only made more improvements since then. The kid gets better every time out. Nevertheless, obviously Sergio Pettis has the scorecard overall on paper and uh, advantage uh, on the feet. That being said, I mean, Moreno's potent there. We could see him stun, uh, you know, put Pettis away. You know, catching him with something or, or a switch kick from that left side, which he's shown that he's quick off the left foot too, right? Against Dustin Ortiz, who's a staple, real tough to finish. Much shit as I give him, he's one of the more consistent guys, right? We already went over that. Um, you could definitely, you know, hurt Pettis. Maybe he's a little more potent, even though he's not the better striker. And as far as grappling goes, the questionable decisions, I mean, in that John Moraga fight and other fights too, were Sergio was ahead. We saw him initiate and grappling. We saw it cost him. And even in fights again where he won and didn't cost him, they, they were kind of unnecessary and unnecessary risks. You know, you'll see Sergio do that where he'll oblige grappling efforts or even initiate his own when he's ahead, and that could be very costly for Sergio um, if he does that against uh, Brandon Moreno, who's an opportunist. I mean, he guillotined Luis Smoka for Christ's sakes. Not just that. I mean, even when um. Not just that, Moreno's really improved on on his takedowns. You know, Pettis, you know, his 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 his, uh, his footwork, his sense of when to stay and when to leave, in and out, his lateral movement, definitely not the easiest to take down. It's gonna make it hard. You know, since working with Izzy style wrestling, definitely gotten better defending takedowns, both in the open and against the cage. But I would not be surprised to see Moreno get uh, be able to take him down. Now again, Sergio Pettis with his leg dexterity and wrist controls. Really good at, you know, getting his butterflies, feet on the hips, using a submission to create a scramble, using the scrambles to get back to his feet, but it's how he gets back to his feet that worries me. Now, I am a fan of somebody who turtles to stand or um, will re-wrestling for single. Re-wrestling in general is a good thing. It helps you get back into the fight, but re-wrestling in for singles to kill a scramble. Sergio Pettis does all these things. The problem is when you do those things, you're going to inherently put yourself at risk for front headlocks when we're wrestling for a single sing, sig, uh, single, and front headlocks can lead to guillotines, which we've seen Brandon Moreno hit, or kind of those snap downs where a guy will kind of snap you down and then go take your back, and now you have your back taken. Again, an opportunistic spot uh, Brandon Moreno can work from. And we saw in the Alex Caceres fight, you know, a fight he could have won where, you know, we, we saw him early in the third round get caught almost in a really bad spot 
uh, Sergio Pettis does, and he re-wrestles in for a single, and he does it appropriately, and he tripods up the stand, and he gets him out of trouble. The problem is he goes to the well and does it again, and Alex Caceres was able to float around to his back, and that's how he was able to finish him. Especially if he's sober, if he's not sober, if he's tired and hurt, you know, I could see, you know, Brandon Moreno jump on that. So again, from these grappling transitions on the way down inside the scramble to, you know, striking puzzle pieces on the feet, it's like Pettis has the more process and maybe the more check marks overall. And I was kind of surprised he's not the favorite, even after, and even though I'm siding with Moreno, I'm still kind of surprised the line's not a little bit closer. But. With Moreno being so potent and just having that intangible, you know, I'm talking about attitude intangible, the happiest man on earth, most fucking happiest post-fight speeches is this fucking kid. Um, but he, he brings it into his performances too, you know. He shows adjustments. He's shows a lot of growth and potential. It's really hard to bet against him because he's going to be making those fight-to-fight improvements. Um, they're not as subtle. Uh, Sergio makes them too, but Sergio makes them more subtly. Not that it makes him any less valuable, makes him any less valid doesn't mean surge doesn't mean brandon moreno is going to win the fight but but what i'm saying is it's more potent uh, his improvements and to go along with the potent finishing abilities where the puzzle pieces fit well the pick is moreno inside the distance i just have a feeling but if pettis wins i will be happy for him um i, I will uh, good luck if you played him I, I could not i was really close i could not i just stayed the fuck away from this one I'm just going to enjoy the main event, um, and uh, if I do do anything, it'll probably be a recap to give you guys, you know, something to munch on for the uh, for, for the holiday break there, another holiday break, but you know, this three-week break coming up, which by the way, we'll be doing, uh, I'll probably be doing some top fives, you know, I know Dan Tom, as I was ranting in the beginning, has been pretty burnt out lately, but uh, doesn't mean I can't leave you guys hanging here. Some solid top five, so uh, I still have uh, suggestions you all have written down uh, or said before. I have them written down and will give you credit if I use one. Or if there's another top five, just shout at me at the MM Analyst or at the PYM Podcast. Use hashtag Protect Your Neck Podcast for anything you want said on the show, comments touched on, more importantly, top five theme ideas. And I'm, I'm really bad at booking that, by the way. You know me, I have a couple go-to people uh, in case you haven't noticed for these top five themes. But if there's someone you would like on the show, go ahead and, and say it. Uh, you can even be that annoying person who tags people. Or if you are someone who's asked to be on the show, or not asked, but I mean like we've talked about you know, booking as far as that is. Uh, I'm very bad at booking. Um, if I forgot about you, believe me, it's not on purpose. I haven't mean to. So if we've had dialogue and the fuck he hasn't gotten back to me feel free to bother me honestly i'm just i've been so busy i've been so overwhelmed lately uh it's been hard to keep track that's why i am excited for this three-week break i'm gonna be able to catch up on everything that i have not been able to catch up on i know it sounds like a constant tune but goddamn they drive us crazy with this ufc schedule and your boy puts the time in he puts the hours in and that's why i'm so burnt that's why my head is so fucking spinning that's why i probably sound burnt out could use the goddamn break as far as breakdowns go and yes, I didn't touch on it on the rant. I will touch on it now really quick before we go. I promise it'll be really quick. But yeah, um, as far as where I'm going, people were asking about that. I don't know. I don't know. I <laughs> revamping my shit, putting my things together, um, as you might have heard in my drunken rants on the after party edition. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go out there privately and make some proposals out there. Hopefully some websites want to uh, up or add to their analysis stable with some cool breakdowns and some content if they want to get some clicks and unique content out there. Again, uh, 
trying to stay humble even when I have a couple beers in me and have a chip on my shoulder and got to toot my own horn because, you know, I'm so terrible at fucking self-promotion. Which, by the way, any y'all, when I said that Mayweather-McGregor crack, any y'all do a Mayweather-McGregor. I'm not hating anybody doing that, by the way. I'm a dumbass for not doing it. I could have got so many fucking clicks. But, to be honest, I was pretty damn proud that MixedMartialAnalyst.com, thanks to your support, has honestly been breaking fucking records. Records with, without me even doing a, a Maymac breakdown. I don't think I'm going to do one. Um, although, I may talk about it more since there's time in these next couple of weeks. We'll touch more on that. If there's anything you guys want, again, reach out. Any ideas, all that stuff, reach out. Um, Till then, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. I'm going to be uh, on the road again. And, uh, you know, not literally, but figuratively. Hopefully, have some more good news to report in the coming weeks. Hopefully you guys are doing well. We'll talk soon. We'll talk on Twitter. We'll talk online. We'll talk on the next episode. Until next time, protect your neck. It's good to see you. I must go. I know I look good front. Anyway, my eyes are not accustomed to this light. And my shoes are not accustomed to this hard concrete. So I must go back to my room and make my day complete. Counting flowers on the wall That don't bother me at all Playing solitaire till dawn With the deck of 51 Smoking cigarettes and watching Captain